This is Legal and Compliance Insights from Control Risks, a global specialist risk consultancy. This is the podcast helping you navigate the legal and compliance landscape wherever your business takes you. Hi, I'm James Owen, and I'm the Global Head of Cybersecurity at Control Risks, based here in London. Today, in this episode of Legal and Compliance Insights, we're going to take a look at the ways in which ransomware is shaping a tighter regulatory and sanctions environment around the world. Ransomware has been around for many years, but has only really exploded onto the scene in the last five years or so. The threat posed by ransomware attacks is a highly dynamic one, with criminal groups changing their tactics, adapting their targeting patterns, shutting down and setting up under new guises to avoid law enforcement action all of the time. The barriers to entry are lower than ever, thanks to the commodification of the toolkits needed to carry out these attacks and the use of cryptocurrency payment channels making ransom payments for those who choose to pay hard to detect. The groups themselves operate as highly transactional criminal cartels with until recently a high degree of impunity. So it's not surprising then that for these reasons and many others, governments have sought to respond to these challenges with a tougher regulatory and sanctions regime. Ransomware is a multi-million dollar criminal industry, which will continue to pose significant challenges to companies, not to mention tricky moral and ethical dilemmas. Following tax on critical national infrastructure in the US, it has also been designated as a national security threat. All of which gives us good reason, I think, to take a look in this podcast at the future of ransomware as an issue, how we see the regulatory and sanctions environment evolving, and what this ultimately means for corporate security and compliance teams. To discuss these issues, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by two expert panellists in this space by Ed McNicholas, the co-leader of the data privacy and cybersecurity practice at the global law firm Brooks & Gray, joining us from Washington, D.C. today. Hi, Ed. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Good to be here, James. And by my colleague at Control Risk, Jay Pereira, who lives and breathes cyber attacks on a daily basis in his role leading our cyber response team. Hi, Jay. Really good to have you here too as well. Thanks, James. Feeling very good and glad to be here. What I first wanted to kick off with was to really look at how we got to this point. Ed, I'll come to you in a moment to chart some of the main developments we've seen in the regulatory and law enforcement space. But Jay, just to kick us off, can you chart how we got to this point by telling us a little bit more about what ransomware actually is and how it's changed as an attack type over the last few years? If you go back sort of far enough, probably about five, six years ago, we were talking a lot and we were responding a lot to DDoS for ransom. So that's distributed denial of service attacks where people would be hitting websites, trying to take them offline, particularly things like e-commerce sites, you know, people selling things online. And over time, I think ransomware has evolved from that space where they perhaps weren't getting the traction that they wanted. And as we saw people moving to more online platforms, but indeed more complex platforms as well to do things such as their billing, running their their content management systems, supporting critical infrastructure operations through technology. I think there's been a realization from some of these groups that if you can target those platforms, you can cause disruption. And if you can cause disruption, you may be able to elicit some kind of payment. 
And so ransomware is sort of an evolution in that where instead of just trying to take down a website through throwing lots of data at it, instead, what attack groups are trying to do now is to target specific companies, their critical assets by getting into the network, usually by phishing or some other means, identifying critical data and rendering that inaccessible and inoperable in some way, shape or form. So as an example, getting into a network and encrypting a database that, let's say, a e-commerce company using the same example will use in order to communicate its prices to its clients. If they can encrypt that database, that means that no one can access that data, no one can read that data. What they then do is reach out to the organization and say, well, if you don't pay me a ransom, I will not release that data. I will not give you a decryption key to release that data. And so they're looking to get some kind of payment in return for that. That's been around for a while, as you said, James. I mean, we started seeing this quite some time ago. Initially, it was very much that targeting of critical systems, trying to take it offline, and then trying to elicit payment. What companies have got better at doing in the meantime is actually having good backups, good resiliency in regards to how things have evolved since then. And what we're seeing today, we've seen the emergence of double extortions. And I know Ed's got lots of experience on this, so really keen to hear your thoughts on this as well, Ed. But double extortions are where you don't just have that sort of critical system going offline anymore. You've also got someone stealing data off of the network. It's a bit of an insurance policy for them. So even if the encryption fails or there is a backup ready, if you've stolen some data, that might force the victim company to the table to negotiate or to try and make some kind of payment. So that's very much the world we're living in now. And I think the majority, the vast majority of ransomware attacks we've seen, at least within control risks over the last 12 to 24 months, have been this sort of double extortion. It looks set to continue, but that's, I think, very much how we've got to where we are today, James. In terms of actually then the leverage that that's giving the attacker, are we saying in these hybrid attacks that it's more the data exfiltration and threat to leak that's actually gaining more leverage for the attacker rather than the actual original encryption of the systems and files themselves? Hard to say, I'd say, James. I mean, I think with some companies, when you have really critical systems offline, that is inevitably where people are going to look. Let's take manufacturing as an example. We've worked on lots of cases where you've got your critical plants offline. You can literally count by the hour, by the minute in some cases, how much revenue you're losing. And so that can be the focus. But there's no doubt that I think by expanding to this double extortion tactic, they're now managing to target a much larger proportion of clients who perhaps may not have a reliance on those IT systems as much as, say, a manufacturing organization may have. But at the same time, they do have sensitive data that they don't want out there. So I think it's a bit of a balance, but without a doubt, creating this new sort of market by having a double extortion has resulted in, in I think, much higher volumes of these cases coming across our desks at least. And in terms of where the costs then lie in the evolution of that attack, how does that actually break down across both the kind of extortive element, the demand, whether or not that's paid or not, versus the actual cost of the outage in your experience, and I guess just generally speaking, rather than too scientifically? These attacks are not just technology issues. And once you get to a world where you've got a crisis scenario on your hands, so the technology has failed, you're dealing with the reputational fallout, you're dealing with the legal fallout of one of these issues, whether you're notifying regulators or whatever it might be, or keeping your your customers happy and keeping them updated. From a technology perspective, you might be rebuilding systems. So the costs associated with responding have increased. And what I'd say is actually coming back to sort of the topic of this particular session, looking at how the regulatory environment has shifted and actually created more focus on things like ransomware and other kinds of attacks as well. I think there's no doubt that there has been an increase 
in the need for organizations to act more robustly when these attacks happen. And in turn, I think that's what's sort of driving up the cost to some extent. But in terms of the breakdown, it really depends on an attack by attack basis. I would say that you shouldn't underestimate the cost of technically responding. And I can speak from, from our perspective, things like data analysis after an incident. So understanding what data may have left the network in order to inform what kind of notifications you might be making through your chosen legal counsel. I think that is actually quite a huge piece of work if you have a lot of data that's gone out of the network, for instance. So there are lots of variables in that question. I think really the key thing here is the more you prepare and the more you understand what you might be faced with down the line, the easier it will be to control those costs when you get there. We've unfortunately worked with lots of clients where they haven't done that or perhaps have had less preparation in that space. And what it's meant is you're asking or sort of starting from scratch some initiatives that perhaps you could have got ahead of time as well. So I think that does make a difference and could change the costs and the implications later on down the line. Ed, I guess just bringing you in on one or two of those points, how does that play out in terms of your own experience of advising around ransomware over the last few years, just in terms of the evolution of the issue itself, how it's kind of ebbed and flowed and changed over time? Ransomware attacks have certainly evolved. Now they often involve data exfiltration or even at a minimum, potentially unauthorized access to personal data or other confidential information. And so organizations must assess their obligations to issue data breach notifications, even if they pay the ransom. A few years ago, the thought was that if you paid the ransom, perhaps you get your system back up and running and the incident would be almost entirely internal to the organization. Now, with this second set of extortion going on, with this double extortion of data exfiltration, we see that you face a a notification decision. Now, these decisions are often fact-intensive. You have to look exactly where this attacker went and how they impacted a particular data base and whether there's any risk of harm to individuals as a result of the attack. That being said, ransomware actors often threaten to expose their target's data if they don't pay the ransom. And payment alone does not necessarily eliminate a victim's obligation to provide notification under applicable law. It also doesn't mean that they'll actually get their data back. There's a certain amount of crossing your fingers on all of this, isn't there? Oh, there, there certainly is. There was a study that was issued, it might have been by Microsoft, on the amount of data recovered after people paid the ransom. The figures were in the neighborhood of 65% of people who paid the ransom recovered all of their data. 29% apparently recovered only about half of their data. And sometimes we see instances of where the additional data that's been exfiltrated is, is it in itself then ransomed a second or third time. And, and instances of where, indeed, if a payment is made, actually that company is in effect painting a bit of a target on its own back. And I'm conscious of the wins, actually, that the Department of Justice, the DOJ, has had in, in the US over the last six to 12 months, particularly in regards to solar winds and one or two of the groups coming out of Eastern Europe. Do you think? more pressure is being exerted on the main criminal operators in the ransomware space, and that's likely in the future to result in less significant attacks, possibly? I do think offensive cybersecurity operations by Western countries against the sponsors of these attacks have been helpful. Law enforcement and the intelligence community have been going after some of these ransomware gangs and some of their infrastructure and making some inroads. The key thing to my mind, is that these ransomware gangs are businesses. They have costs, they want to make profits. And to the extent that we have 
offensive cyber operations, either through law enforcement or through cyberspace military operations, we can increase the costs. One of the big problems with the expansion of ransomware is that it became too cheap to become a, a, a ransomware extortion organization. You had a free flow of money with crypto. You had a government in Russia that would allow you to operate with impunity. And you had ransomware as a service being developed where your costs of operation were much lower. You didn't have to learn everything yourself. You could, in fact, benefit from a help desk to help you get your ransomware installed. Those cost curves were pushed too far down. Some of the law enforcement and military operations are increasing the costs on our adversaries and denying them benefits. And that will help over the long run to decrease this plague of ransomware. I wanted to get a sense then from you, given your work as a lawyer and the kind of advisory that you, you provide to your clients, both in North America, but also globally around the world, just how ransomware has started to shape new rules of the game in the regulatory and law enforcement environment, particularly in the US, to kick things off, if you could give us that overview. One of the biggest movers in the US regulatory environment in 2022 is certainly going to be the Security and Exchange Commission. In 2021, we saw the SEC continue to stake its claim to be a leading regulator for cybersecurity. Five years ago, it was the Federal Trade Commission and the state attorney generals that were the leads in U.S. cybersecurity. Now the SEC is coming in, both in its role in regulating financial services, including for investment advisors and broker-dealers, and in its role as regulating public companies. We have seen the Security Exchange Commission evolve rapidly. The first time, there were a few investigations that were before this, but the first time the Security Exchange Commission ever fined a public company over cybersecurity issues was at Yahoo, and that was only in April of 2018. But since then, the Security Exchange Commission has issued a, a series of, of, of guidance documents that have pushed the borders of its jurisdiction in August of 2021, the SEC finalized a million-dollar settlement with the British educational giant Pearson for alleged misstatements and omissions in public filings and media statements about a data breach. It is amazing to see the Securities Exchange Commission using the enormously powerful cudgel of securities fraud to attack cybersecurity issues, but this is forcing companies to engage in much more robust disclosure of potential data security issues. And it is forcing companies to look to the Security Exchange Commission for guidance. And to its benefit, I guess, the SEC is issuing helpful guidance on safeguarding customer accounts, the importance of overseeing vendors and making sure that your data is protected when it's outside of your systems. It's focused also on procedures to address Malicious email activities, as we all know, multi-factor authentication, encryption can help decrease the exposure to all sorts of email-borne pathogens, most particularly ransomware significantly. The SEC is also focused on management of operational risk and disclosure of cybersecurity vulnerabilities. In fact, right now, the SEC having pressed a whole bunch of companies to think about whether they've appropriately disclosed exposure to solar winds is now engaged in the same effort with the log4j issue and so we've seen 
the SEC push out on this issue of perhaps disclosing vulnerabilities. Chair Gensler indeed mentioned that the SEC is currently working on a new proposal for clear cybersecurity governance rules, including what he's calling cyber hygiene, as well as incident reporting. And so we will see the SEC come forward with new guidance and new regulations in 2022. I do wonder, just thinking out loud, the extent to which the SEC and likewise the DOJ on the enforcement side here are learning from their experience of the adequate procedures that need to be put into place from a risk management point of view around anti-corruption obligations. So the the role that the the FCPA, for example, in third-party risk management and due diligence has played in kind of compliance programs over the last, frankly, 20 to 30 years. I wonder whether there are any learnings, given also the extraterritorial nature of the actual issue at the heart of what they're dealing with here, that they're actually kind of picking up from from those previous learnings. What, What would you say to that? I do think that the SEC has been evolving significantly in its approach to these issues. They are seeing this much more now as a governance issue as opposed to an issue of specific technical controls. It seemed to be at first that they were focused on, does the company have multi-factor authentication? Do they have encryption of key data sources? Now they are seeing this also as a question of, what structures the company has in place. Do they have the right people in charge of cybersecurity? Do those people have the adequate resources? Do they have appropriate accountability? Do they have access to the board of directors? Is the board of directors demanding reports about cybersecurity so they can exercise effective oversight? By shifting from the focus on particular technical controls and putting the emphasis right in the boardroom the SEC is going to be driving significant change in this area. And Jay, from a UK and European point of view, do we see anything similar over on this side of the pond? I think in general, this regulatory point and how it's evolved over the last few years is really interesting because one of the key things Ed sort of mentioned there is how this is not the end game. This is not the end state. I think regulators in general, whether it's the SEC or others in Europe, for instance, are learning as much as we are, you know, as we go along the chain and developing processes that emerge from that. In the UK, for instance, and I think within Europe, there is an emphasis actually on looking at some of the examples we have in, in the US, knowing full well that there are fairly mature processes in place. And even when we look outside of the regulatory environment and we look at things like intelligence sharing, which is something that I know that the FCA in the UK is really keen on, models like the FSISAC, so that's the financial services intelligence sharing portal, which is actually an independent body, but allows financial services to share information in the US. That was sort of heralded as one of the key things. And I think some of the work the SEC is doing and looking at there is similarly being looked at, obviously in the UK, but elsewhere within Europe as well. I think one of the key things for us from a regulatory perspective and when we respond to cases is is very much the involvement of the actual data regulators here in the UK being the ICO, but obviously the various data regulators within Europe as well. And I think that's a really defining feature of the way in which companies respond within Europe now, because there's such an emphasis on data privacy, obviously with GDPR, but we've started to see not just sort of notifications flying out the window, but actually a lot more involvement from some of these organizations. And speaking from experience with dealing with the Information Commissioner's office over here, so the ICO, we are seeing not just notifications going out when there is something like a breach, but actually a lot more hands-on involvement, including 
things like direct briefings to the ICO and their representatives on specific cases where there is deemed to be a level of impact that is in the public interest in some way, shape or form. And that then may be used for informing the relevant members of government, etc. So I think the regulatory bodies around data, especially in Europe, are becoming or have become a real focal point of response full stop. And it works very closely, I think, with law enforcement. I know we're talking about sort of the regulatory bodies here, but what we've seen with, from the National Cybersecurity Centre here in the UK or the NCSC has been a real concerted effort to try and support private sector organisations to improve and understand how to best manage risk going forward, even during an incident. So that involves as well understanding what the obligations may be to these data regulators so that the long-term impacts are not fanning the flames of those long-term impacts, such as not disclosing or notifying people within 72 hours if there is an obligation to do so. Not all businesses have read and understand that. I think that's particularly important for sort of small to medium-sized businesses that need that guidance, either from the ICO, and it's great that they're stepping in on more cases now, or indeed from the NCSC, who are providing much more information, material, advice during incidents and before incidents to sort of drive the agenda. So I think there are a lot of similarities here. There is, I think, a sense that Europe is sort of watching the US to some extent to see what we can learn and then obviously apply in these jurisdictions as well. Where the US leads, others follow, I guess, in the regulatory space. But Jay, what this really kind of boils down to from my point of view is this sounds great and in some ways could be empowering for organisations in terms of it being clearer what their compliance and governance obligations actually are within a breach context. But ultimately, it's not going to get any easier, is it, to identify actually whether there's a machine or a human protagonist at the end of the attack. And indeed, in many cases, there's multiple layers to that attack, particularly in the context of a ransomware as a service offering where the perpetrator is just licensing the capability from a third party. How do we know who we're dealing with? I mean, this is a million dollar question in many cases. Exactly as you said, it sort of chimes back to the obligations on a company when this kind of attack happens. And particularly if you are considering making some kind of payment, and I'm sure Ed can speak to that in more detail, but one of the key stages of any kind of response, particularly ransomware, is attribution and understanding who you're dealing with because sanctions compliance obviously requires, quite frankly and quite clearly, knowing the entity that you're dealing with and doing the due diligence on that entity so that you can do the various lookups that you need to do prior to any kind of payment to understand if they are indeed sanctioned or not. But I think in cyberspace, it's so much more difficult to really know who you're dealing with. There are very well-known groups that exist out there and of course, they are sort of the big names that everybody talks about, sort of the dark sides of the world, the quantities of the world. These are groups that are very common and we come across them all the time. But the way in which these groups work is an affiliates model where you can have individual hackers who essentially buy access to the Conti tool or the Black Matter tool or a part of their affiliate network and carrying out attacks that then point back to their dark websites as an example. However, because it's so hard to attribute or indeed to to take away any kind of anonymity from these individual hackers, you can never really know whether somebody is who they say they are. If they say they are Conti Group, are they actually genuinely them? Are they an affiliate in between? And how do we actually understand that completely? And I think there's a balance here. And so to give sort of live examples, when we're on cases and we're working with clients who are going through a cyber attack, it's really stressful. And the last thing you want to be doing is going through a really academic a review of who this group is and turning over every single stone, because to be very clear, that will take months and years. You may not still find an answer because there's shared infrastructure. There's some unique identifiers, but not many. It's very easy to run sort of false flag operations in the dark web. So all of these factors mean that you need to take a very proportional approach to understanding who you're dealing with. 
And that means that I think the technology leaders or those sort of forensics organizations that come in to support companies, including control risks, for example, it's our job to identify or usually help identify whether or not we think this group is indeed who they are. So we look at things like the technical indicators of compromise. How do they get in? What technology did they deploy, et cetera? We look at the tactics they're using, the websites and the communication feeds that they're using to to communicate with the victim company, for instance. And it's essentially a a job of trying to coordinate that together in order to make an assessment as to whether or not this is indeed the group that we believe they are. But there's no saying that in a day's time that the Treasury in the US will come out and say that the group you were dealing with yesterday is now a sanctioned entity. I think the main thing there is actually about risk management. And that's a really key part of what some of the guidance is, especially in the US. And I guess just demonstrating that you've put adequate procedures into place. I mean, we know that the NCSC and the Office for Foreign Assets Control, OFAC in the US, is actively discouraging ransom payments. It's citing cooperation with law enforcement as a mitigating factor. OFAC is advocating for companies to ensure that they have robust sanctions, compliance programs, and security controls in place. Just from a tangible point of view, Jay, what does actually adequate look like? I guess that depends on who you are, your profile as an organization. But from a security and compliance point of view, what should security officers and compliance controllers be thinking about from a risk management point of view, given this new guidance? So this is an interesting one because it's one of those clauses, one of those lines in that guidance that you can see has been designed to try and help who they're dealing with. But there's a huge amount of ambiguity as to what is you know, effective risk management, what is adequate in that respect. And ultimately, it's grey because not every single organisation can invest in the same way, nor should they. I think every organisation has a slightly different requirement in terms of risk profile and therefore controls. If I was trying to provide advice to a client on this topic, when we look at what is adequate, I think it's important not to just throw that clause at your IT team and say, right, put in adequate security controls. What does that mean? I think what's important is to sort of step back and understand, okay, from a high level, what is it we're worried about? You know, who is it who's going to attack us? Most likely, given our profile, what we do as a business, and hence, you know, what could be impactful. What are they going to target? You know, what are our key assets here? If they're going to go after our you know, operational technologies platforms, is that our priority? Protect is that not? If the keys to the kingdom are very much our Active Directory, for instance, what are we doing to detect anomalies on that? For instance, I think going back to those bare bones and those big questions right at the top helps to prioritise what's going on. Ultimately, I think what any regulator, law enforcement will want to see in terms of you know, adequate security is that there's a thought through plan that's linked to threat. You've identified what you might come up against. You've identified what they might target. You've then taken a proportionate plan to defend against those specific types of attacks. In real tangible terms, for huge you know, Fortune 100 companies, that can be a multi-million dollar security transformation framework that you've developed in conjunction with consultancies and you rolled out over multiple years. For smaller shops, obviously, they're not going to have that kind of spending power. But there, I think it's more about having some of the basics in place. I think Ed mentioned earlier, multi-factor authentication, for instance, it's such a critical control. And I think when it's not in place as an example, it does ask questions of the organization who's been hit. Things like multi-factor authentication, having a good training and awareness program, proof that you've sort of gone through and thought about what cyber risk might impact you. These are all things that can support you. But ultimately, I think that particular guidance is written to really force people to think about cybersecurity, to think about how they should be protecting the most critical assets. But in terms of the way that that manifests, I think that's very much down to context for each individual company. Ed, from your point of view, 
Are you now seeing examples of companies in the US being much more proactive in their approach to cyber risk management in particular? And if so, who's overseeing that within the organization? Does that sit across both security compliance? Is there a level of coordination between them or is that still happening in a fairly siloed way? You know, I'm very happy to see cybersecurity finally being in the boardroom. The governance of cybersecurity is no longer something that is being put at the feet of IT and they're just being told, handle it. It's not sitting in the compliance office as a, a minor compliance matter. The attorneys aren't saying, well, this is, this is our responsibility now. People are looking at it and saying, wait, there's an IT aspect of this, but if our systems go down, this will have operational impacts. This will have legal impacts. Preparations have compliance impacts. And we need to make sure that the whole company is responding to this. And the way to make sure that a whole company is responding to the threat of ransomware is to have leadership from the top. One of the most effective things any board of directors could do is to simply ask for a quarterly report on cybersecurity readiness. And the mere need to write something down and present it to the board of directors will cause the organization to think, well, I think I have a role in this. So the compliance officer will submit a report, legal will submit a report, and IT will submit a report. And then the chief financial officer will have to say, well, yes, I have put adequate budget towards this. Different operating segments of the company will have to think, what if this manufacturing plant went down? How would we respond if this plant were down for a week or two weeks? If you have that kind of thoughtful response in advance, your ability to weather any sort of cyber attack increases dramatically. So looking forward then, how do we see the ransomware threat evolving? It has evolved over the last five to 10 years. It will continue to evolve. It's a dynamic threat, just like every cyber issue is. How is it likely to evolve and how are the regulations going to keep up with that threat? It will get more complex. There will be more facets to it. One thing we have seen groups start to do is really become contextually aware of the companies that they're targeting. I very regularly talk to security teams from major financial institutions, for instance, and one of the key things they always mention is the simplicity of some of the attacks they're seeing. It's not always trying to take the most technologically advanced way into a business. It's being intelligent about where you target people and understanding you know, how an asset management firm works, as an example, or understanding how a manufacturing firm works. And I think that knowledge and understanding is leading attackers to be more targeted in the way that they operate. So I think we're not going to see this going away. And I do think we'll see more contextually aware attacks, which will mean that from a defensive perspective, from our perspective, where we're trying to prevent these attacks from happening, we're going to need to try and be as intelligent as they are about detecting them. We need to be looking at every single layer of, of detection as much as possible and try and defend against that. The other thing I'd say is that we will see tweaks to the way in which these extortions are being carried out. We've started to see hints of different tactics work. And it's a bit like the evolution of anything or even like the evolution of a virus. It sort of tries out different tactics and whatever works sticks and becomes the new modus operandi for everybody. And one of the things I've seen, for instance, personally is a triple extortion. And we've seen this a few times where it's not just the systems that go offline it's not just the data that's taken, but in some cases, we've also seen credentials taken from service providers, for instance, so technology service providers or communications service providers who have a login to the networks of their clients. 
that's really concerning because it allows them to then not only extort on, on the basis of availability and confidentiality of their own data, but actually the security of the victim company's own clients. And I think that's a, a really concerning trend. It's not something you can that is applicable to everyone, but it's an example of where these kinds of shifts and slightly different targetings is starting to show other weaknesses. The good news, I think, though, is that you know we're not laying back and letting this just happen to us and it's only ever going to get worse. I think where regulation and some of the sanctions compliance discussion can really help is it starts to reduce the options for these criminal groups. You know, If you come across as a sanctioned entity, you will not be paid. And that is something that you're going to see consistently across all the organizations that you target. And regardless of what people may say, that is effective. That does slow things down. It does make things much more difficult. And I think Ed made a really good point. It was becoming too easy. The barriers to entry to the market were so low because there was relative impunity in some way, shape or form. I think as we start to see these changes come through and a little bit more scrutiny and hopefully more direction from these regimes, hopefully what we'll start to see is better law enforcement interaction, better intelligence sharing, and that will lead to some of the larger groups being targeted at their course so that we can start to see some of the larger groups be taken offline, as we've seen successfully in the past on some limited, but some occasions. And Ed, arguably, cyber insurance has contributed to or, or fueled the problem, making it economically viable to pay the ransom in many cases. But right now, that industry is suffering something of a perfect storm of increased risk, cost and regulation. So we're seeing a hardening in the cyber insurance market. What's your view on, on how that will play out? And with, with insurers increasingly keen to counter the exponential rising claims and potential exposure that they've been suffering in recent years? Insurance is certainly a key factor here. Ransomware itself has been around for more than a decade. It had this incredible expansion because of this series of factors that allowed it to grow from being a minor annoyance to a national security issue. And one of the concerns is the uh, availability of insurance to pay for the ransoms. Obviously, the insurance companies do not want to in any way foster ransomware. And so we're seeing them during this most recent renewal cycle, go through and significantly decrease the amount of coverage available, significantly increase the cost of, it, of the cost of what coverage is available, and to become much stricter in terms of their underwriting criteria for companies. This has led to a significant diminishment in the availability of coverage for ransomware. And it also kind of keys up one of the most important decisions here about whether an organization should pay or should not pay the ransom. Uh, normally, uh, organizations have had the reliability of having insurance cover to support that decision and also the guidance from the insurance companies about when they have negotiated long enough in order to hit that point where paying the ransom is economical. Now, a lot of companies will be approaching the decision about whether to pay, whether to negotiate, then pay, or whether not to pay at all through a much different framework. We're seeing governments discourage payment of ransom. We're seeing governments suggest that you need to do extensive checking for OFAC and sanctions regimes before making payments. And we're seeing the payment question, sort of a buy versus build analysis. Can they rebuild their system or do they have to buy back their old system? And many companies are now saying, no, we can simply rebuild a newer, better system as opposed to paying the ransomware. And the issue then will be, will the insurance cover 
the cost of the rebuilding process? Or will they say, no, that was part of your underlying IT infrastructure? Just to finish up, I'll ask both of you if there was one key takeaway that you wanted to leave with a compliance officer or of a security lead in one of the organizations with whom you have a regular exchange at the moment about this topic from a kind of risk management point of view, what would that be, Jay, perhaps just to kick off with you first? I think take this back to your, your management team, speak at your sort of executive level and get preparation sorted. There is a huge difference that preparation makes to response and costs and more importantly, reputation as well. And so the earlier you can start to look at preparation and, and do some of the things around understanding risk and putting in place appropriate controls. One, you can hopefully stop these attacks from happening, but two, if they were to attack, you'll be in a really good place to respond. And the second thing I think is look at your data understand what exists on your network, try and map that as much as possible so that if the worst should happen, you understand what's there. And then speaking to your teams and also potentially external counsel, people like Ed, for instance, you can start to make decisions much faster in the heat of an incident around disclosure, notification, what you need to do to maintain compliance in these types of scenarios. My biggest guidance is to get on the other side of the table. Put yourself in the shoes of the person who wants to attack your organization with ransomware. Although you might experience that person through a bot that they have sent out, there's a person back there. There's a person back there that has costs that they have and they're trying to profit maximize. Think about what you can do to increase their cost curves. How can you make yourself a harder target? And if you analyze it that way, you're going to be focused on how do I inflict the maximum cost on my adversary. And it becomes a thought experiment that can be very useful in deciding whether or not you should put more money into buying more insurance, investing in multi-factor authentication, training your employees to spot phishing, perhaps conducting a, a training session or a tabletop for your board of directors. If you think about the relative rate of return of these various potential investments, you will have a better overall strategy. My thanks to Ed McNicholas at Ropes & Gray coming to us today from Washington, D.C., and Jay Pereira at Control Rest from London for their really valuable contributions, and to all of you for listening to what I hope has been an interesting run-through of the way in which ransomware is shaping a new regulatory and sanctions environment, and thus a new set of risk management requirements for opportunities. Thanks very much for listening. Take care and have a good day. If you're in need of any support relating to the topics covered in today's episode, or are simply interested in hearing more about our range of legal and compliance services, do get in touch. And before you go, make sure to subscribe. 